figure out as early as possible how you can be and what you can be most exceptional and extraordinary at. Welcome to the Off Record Podcast with your host, Corey Levy, where we uncover the hidden, behind-the-scenes thoughts and actions of successful people. Today, we speak to entrepreneurial executive and investor Keith Raboy, who is best known for his early-stage startup investments in YouTube, Airbnb, Palantir, and also his operative roles in building PayPal, LinkedIn, Slide, and Square. He's currently a partner at Costler Ventures and the co-founder and executive chairman at Open Door. In this week's episode, Keith talks about how he transitioned from law to tech, what convinced him to leave the safe path into the uncertain times of the dot-com era, he talks about the early PayPal days, what's the hardest role to fill in a company today, and how to discover talent and more. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Off Record. Thank you, Keith, for joining on this show today. I want to start by asking, what were your high school days like and what made you distinct as a teenager? So my high school days were pretty boring. I was kind of gearing up to be a political type. So I wanted to go to a great school. And so I optimized my GPA. I joined all these extracurricular activities, tried to get elected to be president of all these organizations, did all this stuff simultaneously. I really had the goal of being a lawyer and then getting involved in politics. So I knew I was kind of on this pre-law, pre-political trajectory. So I wound up not having a lot of free time because I was doing all these activities all the time. I was like helping on our school newspaper. I was like president of our debate model UN club. I played some soccer. I like joined a bunch of honor societies and pretty much anything that had a bunch of people doing something that I thought would look good on my Stanford application. I probably tried at some point. And then you went to Stanford and what was that like? What were your college days like? Same thing. You know, again, I had this goal since I was in sixth grade of becoming a lawyer. So I knew I wanted to go to a you know, high caliber law school and that generally requires, you know, a high GPA. Yeah, I was kind of on the most conventional trajectory possible. I was a political science major as an undergraduate. I was terrified of taking too many technical classes because they might interfere with my GPA, which would you know make it difficult to get accepted to a high quality law school. Law is pretty, in the legal profession back then and still today, your trajectory is very highly related to the law school you attend and the grades you achieve there. So I was pretty much in optimization mode. I have somewhat ADD or somewhat intellectually curious. So I got involved in a lot of activities also while I was at Stanford, uh, you know, joined a fraternity, ran our fraternity, joined the Interfraternity Council, ran the Interfraternity Council, joined a student organization around publications, wrote a column. I did a bunch of stuff at the same time, but I was pretty leery of taking academic classes that would jeopardize my academic transcript. So that was a primary focus. But Stanford was an incredibly gorgeous place. The weather's unbelievable. So I was outdoors a lot. I focused a lot on getting a suntan, which probably wasn't the best thing for my health, but I was pretty obsessed about it back then. And you were a lawyer for a bit. How did you transition from law to tech? I graduated from law school. I clerked for a well-known appellate court judge for a year, which is a pretty typical career path. And then I practiced law for three and a half years at the kind of canonical, paradigmatic Wall Street law firm named Sullivan and Cromwell. And then I dropped out sort of cold turkey at the height of the internet bubble in February 2000. I got persuaded by some of my friends from college who had been part of the first internet bubble as you know, some of the core builders of the original internet companies. They were always lobbying me and persuading me to come join them back in Silicon Valley. And I eventually decided to say yes in February of 2000. As you may remember, the market collapsed in March of 2000. So even though maybe I had good advice about this is what I should do in my life, my timing couldn't have been any worse. What did your friends say that made you drop law? 
Good question. I think primarily they focused on how this was actually a once in a lifetime opportunity to change the world. They actually kind of appreciated that what we now think of and describe as the internet bubble was a major transformation in society. And it was going to be a point in time in history that I shouldn't miss. So that was pretty clear. Number two, they pointed out that probably be more interested in being involved in teams and organizations. Law is a pretty solitary pursuit. When you do it well, at most, you work with a few other lawyers, like two to three. Whereas, you know, when I talked about my high school and college, days, I was always involved in fairly significant organizations with a lot of people around. And so they probably detected that I'd probably enjoy some parts of the business world. And secondly, or third, I guess, I did enjoy practicing the law. There were many parts of it I appreciated and was thriving at. And so that's why it took me three and a half years to some extent to make the transition. Had I been unhappy, it would have been easier to persuade me. They made some interesting points about you don't want to miss this once in a lifetime opportunity to transform the world. It'll make you happier holistically etc. And so eventually, you know, sort of maybe even fell for a bit of the grass is greener argument and decided to try it. How old were you at that time? And what did your parents say? So I was about approximately 28 years old. So I kind of wasted my 20s practicing law for the most part or studying law, a huge fraction of my 20s. So my parents thought I was a little crazy. I don't think they realized how crazy it actually was. If they did realize how risky the move was, they probably would have been a lot more unhappy with me. But at the time, the legal profession is kind of a lockstep progression, very hierarchical. And once you jump off traditional trajectory, it's virtually impossible to get back on. But I don't think my parents really appreciated from afar how difficult it was. They probably they assume, hey, there's lots of legal needs in the world. You're a Harvard Law School, you know, graduate, someone will hire you. But it's a very different world once you get off that like sort of progression. I really did like jump off this cliff without a net at the worst possible time. But in any event, it worked out reasonably well, although it wasn't so obvious, you know, at that moment. And at that moment, what was going on in your mind when the market crashed? You know, at first, the market really crashed in two phases. So the first phase, a lot of people were commiserating by telling themselves optimistically that it was just a temporary blip. It wasn't really until June that the market collapsed again. Then everybody came to the conclusion this was a pretty permanent thing and that we're actually going to go through something like a nuclear winter. And that's when it became a little bit more scary and everybody had to adjust their strategies. A lot of people had built companies predicated on sort of free money, easy availability of capital, very low thresholds for going public. And so that whole worldview had to like recalibrate. And so all the strategies and approaches of the companies and the plans of the companies had to be radically rethought in light of this new world order. And so some companies were able to succeed or, or survive by adjusting rather rapidly. The company I was involved in at the time actually had some interesting prospects and an interesting opportunity, but the CEO was too indecisive in committing to new plans and making revisions. The time clock was ticking down on us. I realized that he was never going to fix the problem by taking decisive action. So I sort of started calling some of my friends from college, most notably Peter Thiel, and I asked him what I should do. And Peter said, well, you know, I can introduce you to lots of people at Silicon Valley, but the reality is you should come work for us. And Peter had just come back as interim CEO of PayPal on September 25th, 2000. And he suggested that I move across the country because I was in Boston and in DC and join this crazy bunch of misfits at PayPal. And PayPal obviously become, you know, was a tremendous success, but also seems like a lot of amazing people came out of PayPal, they did extraordinary things. Why do you think that was or how do you think PayPal attracted you and, and everyone else on that team? 
So I think Peter and Max Levchin had a very strong sense of what they were looking for. Their ability to recruit people and assess people was proven by history to be you know, incredibly effective. I think the one of the key dimensions to that was they basically only hired people they knew. So Max recruited a lot of engineers that either went to high school with or the University of Illinois. And Peter recruited a lot of people he went to Stanford with. And that's how I knew Peter as well. And that, that those two groups, and at least maybe one degree of concentric circle around them, like sort of a second degree network, provided 80% of the team at PayPal. So they were able to tap into networks that they built over time and built for different reasons and leverage those networks and put people in places within the company that they could succeed. And if not, they'd make changes. And what are some of the most common mistakes you see young founders do today? Well, there's several. Let's start with the basic premise that building a company from scratch to success is a very rare and very challenging thing. So by definition, it's not intuitive. It's not easy. It's not something you can just pick up a book and read and say, I'm going to be a successful founder. That said, I think one of the biggest mistakes people make is not selecting the DNA of their core team to be appropriate for the market and product they need to build. So for example, if one were striving to build an next SpaceX, the core team has to have a set of skills that are quite different than the set of skills required to compete with Facebook. Conversely, if one were to start like a payments company, which is something I'm pretty familiar with, you might want to recruit a general counsel in your first 10 employees, which is something Stripe did, where that would make no sense for 99% of other startups. So understanding what the key risks and the key challenges that confront a startup are going to be in recruiting the right people with the core skill for that set of challenges is one of the most important things that a founder can do. Now that said, I've founder has a different network when they start their company. So it's difficult sometimes for young founders to tap into expertises that come sort of from experience, like a general counsel, like a CFO. They just don't have that in their early network. So one of the, in fact, one of the things that a good investor can do is help identify the gaps between the core team and the key DNA that's required for success and help bridge that gap in networks and help make people, find people, identify people that may be the appropriate fit. We do a lot of that. Um, Jumpstarting companies with a caliber team for the challenges probably increases the odds of success by a meaningful amount in any of those startups. What's the hardest role to fill in your opinion right now? The hardest role to fill is probably a data scientist coupled with business acumen. A, data scientists are very sort of hot right now. Machine learning, AI, you know, all the buzzwords. So everybody wants to hire data scientists, so they're scarce. Like really awesome people are scarce in any field. But B, the thing that drives an early stage company requires marrying a data scientist with business insights. And that's a very small Venn diagram overlap. By, it's not just a function of how good can you do your math and what kind of statistical technology techniques can you leverage? It's a function of asking the right questions. What are the most important things to understand about our business? How's the fastest way to get to an answer? And that's a very, very rare skill. Got it. And do you see any similarities between the early 2000s and today? And if you are a founder to get you are, what are some things you would do to take the crash or upcoming crash that people are talking about into consideration? I think there's two dimensions. I don't, I wouldn't really make a strong comparison between 2000 and 2017. I think the differences are more meaningful and material than the similarities. However, there's two things that are pretty similar. One is in 2000, I'm personally a very good example of this is such a shortage of talent because everybody needed to hire because everybody was growing so fast that you couldn't just hire people who had experience in technology companies. So someone took a risk on me as a lawyer who knew nothing about business because they didn't really have a choice at the end of the day. There were so few people that they could hire. Conversely, people like me, because of the momentum of the internet, were willing to jump off of our career trajectories to try out this new thing. And I think with Silicon Valley startups being 
pretty attractive and pretty hot for the last decade. I think there's a lot of people with traditional backgrounds, whether they're MBAs or more credential oriented people that want to join technology companies. And that's not necessarily a good thing, but it's, it's a factual statement. Second thing is in 2000, we all assumed that money would be cheap, that effectively money is oxygen for startups. The cost of oxygen would be fairly negligible. So our strategies and approaches to growing a company were pretty much predicated on the cost of oxygen being low or inexpensive, certainly, you know, low marginal costs. And I think that's been true for the most part over the last decade. If that shifts, suddenly, if the cost of oxygen changes on you in a fairly meaningful way, strategies that used to make sense and techniques that used to work are no longer appropriate. I mean, you can imagine, like, let's say us as people, if you and I had to live our life every day paying for our oxygen, uh, we might have to change, you know, how we lived our lives in, in various ways. We couldn't just assume, you know, we could go for a run and like, burn up all that oxygen, you know, to get our workout. Right. What were some, aside from being frugal, is there anything you're doing to warn some of the, the CEOs that you work with today? Yeah, I wouldn't say frugality as much as scenario planning, like meaning understanding the connection between fixed costs and variable costs in your business and being able to edit quickly if the world changes cost structure of a business. I don't think one has to you know, sort of save every penny and drive 55 miles an hour. Actually, I think most startups should drive faster rather than slower. Like time is your enemy, not your friend, generally speaking. But understanding what levers one will have under one's control, if and when it's appropriate to make a change, and which levers are very difficult to change and very have long lead times is something you want to do in advance, not under pressure. Right. That makes sense. And what's your day like today? How do you manage your time? Do you have any specific morning, afternoon, or evening routines? Well, so I think the most important thing I do is I'm obsessive about sleep. So I sort of focus on getting eight hours sleep and then optimize around that. That's the first principle is get eight hours sleep every day. Um, in the morning, I tend to like to read a fair amount, although Twitter has become a distraction from that. I'm pretty addicted to Twitter. I kind of want to know, intellectually curious, I want to know what's going on in the world. Then I wake up, I get out of bed, read Twitter. Sometimes that takes longer than it should. Try to find a little bit of time for reading a good book and then work out. Then I'll basically do about 10 to 12 meetings during the day. 40, 50, 60, 70, 80% of those are working with founders that we've already invested in, advising, consulting, playing pop psychologist with the founder. And then number two, I'm trying to find new interesting founders and companies. I mean, that takes up the rest of the day. And then sometimes conclude the day by doing a high intensity workout or playing soccer. Where do you see the most VCs or entrepreneurs wasting their time? Uh, I think there's several things that look like confusing motion and progress. One of them is reading Twitter too much or reading blogs. I actually am a strong fan of dropping all blogs and just reading books. Like what you're really trying to do is your muscles a brain and you want to train your brain, you want to push your brain, you want to challenge your brain. And blogs and short tweets and stuff like that don't do that. You need to grapple with existential questions and read challenging sort of materials. And I think books and printed books particularly are much better at that. So I think I would also avoid conferences for the most part. You know, my filter when I would attend a conference and agree to speak is, are there people in the audience I can recruit? Or these days, are there proto-founders in the audience, people I can invest in? So what's my most important thing when I was running a company is recruiting talent. So I would only go to conferences where I could recruit talent. If the audience wasn't going to have people that I'd want to recruit, it wouldn't be worth my time. Likewise, today, for the most part, my job is to find new interesting people to invest in. Most conferences don't have new interesting people starting companies, at least as a huge fraction of the audience. And so it's not that useful to go to a conference. But I think people don't filter their time very well. It's a systematic problem. People systematically undervalue their time. It's their scarcest resource. And then they don't leverage it well. We do things like calendar audits with first-time managers and with CEOs, try to match their allocation of time to their priorities. And it rarely matches extremely well. 
I like that trick. What's something that you know you should do, but you don't do yet, not including the Twitter addiction? The thing that's been most challenging in my job in the last four and a half years since I've been a professional investor is figuring out how to create leverage in my time. So in companies, you build a team around you that creates leverage, and that allows you to do multiple things in parallel and allows you to do things faster. And in venture, especially early stage venture, where there's a lot more art than science, finding a way to create leverage for yourself has defied everybody. There's no model out there. There's nobody I look to and say, aha, they've cracked the code. This is exactly how to scale oneself. I've struggled with that. And I think I wish I had invested more time and energy in figuring out techniques or testing out hypotheses on new approaches to scale earlier, because at some point, the earlier you pay the dividends and the tuition for learning, the better off you are. So I'm starting to spend more time investing in creativity around that now, but I won't know answers for another year or two. And that, you know, that just lags and gets worse. And do you have any do you have any methods to making hard decisions, whether that's hiring your chief of staff or leading a big round of financing or joining, you know, Kosla versus another company? Do you regret minimization? Any tactics around that? Yes, I think there are several points. Reed Hoffman taught me a way of making complicated decisions, which I think is mostly right, which is figure out the first most important goal and optimize around that. Don't create like a checklist of pros and cons, like with a column on the left or pros and a column on the right being cons. Figure out your number one priority and then make a decision on which of the choices most accomplishes your number one priority. And then if there are a tie, then go to your number two priority. So I think that's a pretty good technique, kind of a ridiculous technique, but I found actually pretty helpful, ridiculous quotes technique that I found pretty helpful over my career is to actually flip a coin. I think flipping a coin forces you to come up with a decision. And if you're emotionally disconnected from that decision, when the coin flip happens, you'll sort of overrule it, but it creates a nice forcing function, which can be really useful. I learned that by reading a profile back in Sports Illustrated, you know, probably 20, 30 years ago, Herschel Walker, who used that decision to decide to go to the University of Georgia, which worked out pretty well for him. But I think that technique actually has more merits than most people grant. That's kind of how I made my college decision. The worked out fine. Yeah. So I'd like to play a quick game, and it's simply I'm going to list a handful of people you've worked with, and then I would like you to share one or two of the biggest things that you've learned from these individuals. The first sure. one is Peter Thiel. Peter taught me about two things, but the, probably the most important one is the importance of discovering undervalued talent. I learned this my first week at PayPal. We went for a jog around the Stanford campus, and he was kind of asking me basic questions like, what did I think of the company? And I had a classic first week orientation kind of questions. And then we got into a substantive discussion of building a company. And what Peter pointed out is that when you're building a company from scratch, you really can't compete for the people who've already done everything before, who have central casting resumes, because large companies back then, like Yahoo or something, like that. And today, like Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon are just going to pay them so much money that it's very difficult to compete with that. So you have to find undiscovered talent. And what undiscovered talent technically means is people who have LinkedIn profiles or resumes that don't have enough data for the large companies to make sense of them. They don't know how to process these people. And so you've got to figure out how to dive into a pool of those people, create a magnet for those people, and then assess them. And that's been the most important thing in my career is being able to learn to do that well. You know, over 17 years, I think becoming incredibly proficient at finding these kind of odd looking people and being able to predict with some degree of accuracy who has the potential to be a superstar. And what are you doing today to try to find undiscovered talent? Is it going to different universities outside of San Francisco area in New York or 
Yeah, I don't do that. I mean, I think a lot of people have been able to identify early in my career actually went to fairly orthogonal universities. They didn't, uh, only one of the, let's say, 10 best people that were hired went to Stanford, which may surprise people. And I think most actually went to fairly mediocre institutions like University of Cal Davis, I'll get myself in trouble, UCSF, like a bunch of really random places. But I think today, the way to cut through the clutter, perhaps, is through an online presence. So Benjamin Franklin, you know, wrote that the guide to a successful life is to do something worth writing about or write something worth reading. And I think with the proliferation of things like Reddit, Quora, Twitter, et cetera, Medium, it's pretty easy to have a differentiated voice. And if you really have insights that other people will miss, put those things out there. Like I've definitely met people intentionally that I discovered on Twitter or Quora originally. I've actually offered jobs to people that I never met, mostly just by reading their online comments, because you can see that their mind worked differently and insightfully and incisively. And so I think there's ways to get discovered, sort of. But it gets, it does get harder as you get older for me. My network obviously is more removed from up and coming undiscovered talent than it used to be, you know, 10, 20 years ago. So I think you have to find correct ways to correct for that if you want to still be ahead of the curve. And it's really challenging as you get older. What have you learned most from Reed? Yeah, so Reed taught me about the strategic uses of time. Not only how to leverage your own time, but the times of dimension to negotiation. For example, time can be your friend or your enemy, depending upon whether things are getting better or worse over time. And so understanding whether your time or your friend is your enemy allows you to change the dynamics or should allow you to shift the dynamics of a negotiation. So always understanding where time is and who it affects the most and which way as part of your core strategy. What about Max Lovchen? So the most important thing I've learned from Max is, first of all, how rare it is to combine first-rate technical talent with exceptional business strategic thinking. And that that Venn diagram overlap is what empowers a founder to be extraordinarily successful. By comparison, we were talking about how difficult it is to find a data scientist who has business acumen, but that's what you're looking for is the combination of those two things allows you to make very thoughtful, insightful decisions. Second thing is Max really taught me the way to combine sort of machine learning and humans into one comprehensive system. So now that's a relatively well understood concept, but Max pretty much invented it in 2000 and was fairly radical. We used that to solve our fraud exposure at PayPal. That brilliance, the insight of how to combine math and machines with people in a very high leverage, very high performing system as a whole is something we used at Square from the very, very beginning. And then we use an open door today. And, and what about Jack Dorsey, speaking of Square? The most important thing that Jack taught me is how much details matter. So everybody can say that details matter. Everybody might agree that details matter. But at the end of the day, very few people don't focus on the details and they don't obsess about crafting the details perfectly. So you can build actually a product, a company, and a culture on this principle. It, you know, it's somewhat Apple-esque, I admit, but very few people have actually applied it to a startup. It derives a little bit from this book that both Jack and I really like, written by a football coach Bill Walsh called the score takes care of itself. And the title sort of gives away the principle, which is if you do everything, each individual component perfectly, the winning score will just be a byproduct of all those smaller decisions. And so that's a philosophy that's very different with how a lot of people build a company, but it's one I really believe in. And I think that's the philosophy that Jack sort of borrowed from Apple, tweaked to make it modern for the 21st century and built Square. So basically it's taking the benefits of design-oriented thinking down to the detail level in every single dimension. Love it. And lastly, what about Vinod? The most important thing I've learned from Vinod is an adage he expressed when he was on the board of Square and I was running the company. He had a philosophy that said that 
the team you build is the company you build. And that really instilled the importance of recruiting a talent into the formation of DNA of a company better than anything I've ever heard or any other you know sort of adage I've heard from anybody else. So I repeat this adage that the team you build is the company you build all the time. It's fundamental that you recruit and retain the best possible people in the planet. And that dictates the outcome as much as your strategy and the market and all the other things that people focus on. And if you were to start a company today, what are some of the areas that interest you most? I think there's two areas that I'm personally fascinated by. One is what's generally referred to as life extension, which I'll make a little bit more tangible, which is using science that already exists to extend the active years of someone's life by five to 15 years. I think that's actually, we're on the precipice of making that very realistic for a large set of American people. I think if you get outside the 10 to 15 year window, then it's still science fiction-y and there's breakthroughs that don't yet exist that'd be required to do that. But I think that can be done today. And so I'm looking for foundations who want to do that with technologies that can do that. And I would love to be involved. The second area that I think is ripe for software innovation is achieving goals. So as we talked about allocation of time, that's just a subspecies of achieving your goals, efficiently using your time. But marshalling your resources, allocating your time to achieve an objective is something that realistically no app and no software product really guides you to. And that doesn't make any sense to me because there are actually books, like old school books you can read in a bookstore. They're actually quite helpful. And maybe they're a little bloated and there's only one or two chapters that are helpful. But if you stitch them all together, they actually can be pretty incisive. But the problem with books is that they're written for everybody, like the median, the middle of the bell curve. They don't calibrate themselves based upon where you are on the distribution and where you want to get to. And they don't calibrate themselves and adjust themselves in real time based upon things you did today or yesterday or last week. And that's something software is excellent at. So I think being able to say, I want to live longer, or I want to become a, a vice president of engineering, or I want to make more money, or I want to be happier, or specify any goal you think, there should be software that helps you get there. And that's something I really want to build. What are some of the biggest things you've taken away from self-help books that you incorporate into your life? Great question. There's several. One of the most important, there's a fabulous book called the, entitled The Upside of Stress, written by a professor at Stanford. And I think it's magical. I think it, will tra- it transforms your life just by reading it. The major arc of the book, although it's more complex than this, is that a mere attitude towards envisioning stress as a challenge as opposed to something bad literally changes the outcome, whether it's a job interview, whether it's your health, any part of your life, just by embracing the idea that stress is a challenge and that humans are designed to be challenged. And the research is incredibly compelling. She answers every possible critique, every possible objection in a way that literally changes your life as soon as you finish reading the book. So that's my favorite. Got it. And I want to talk a little bit about controversy, either firsthand or secondhand. Do you have any stories where you've either worked with a founder or at the companies that that you worked at where controversy played a, a part in success? Sure. I think by definition, startups are generally controversial because to some extent, there's a lot of inertia in the world and people believe that changing that inertia is difficult or impossible. So I think most good startups, perhaps all good consumer startup ideas should actually generate ridicule and laughter. And then if half your friends don't think something's dumb or silly, it's probably not sufficiently differentiated to cut through the clutter. So I think by definition, you kind of want a consumer product to be a little controversial. tangible example, Example, though, of how controversy can fuel success is I think the surge pricing controversy that Uber used to deal with, you know, sort of on a weekly basis actually did allow them to grow much more rapid clip than had they not had that controversy because the media liked to write about surge pricing. 
and that it would expose a lot of Americans who never heard of Uber, never used Uber to this new product that allowed them to, you know, compete favorably with taxis. So it was like free marketing at national and sometimes global scale. So it's one of the best uses of controversy to drive business outcomes that I've seen in a long time. What's something controversial today that you think will be commonplace tomorrow? To show you how fast things can go from controversial to conventional, I think we should focus like one example of that is let's talk about autonomous vehicles. If you had said three or four years ago that autonomous vehicles would you know, transform American society and global society, uh, people would have found that to be a pretty provocative statement. Whereas right now, I think people are, the only question is not whether it'd be good or bad, but when and how fast and in what cases are we going to see it sooner rather than later. The regulatory environment, in fact, is moving rather rapidly, both at the federal and state level to accommodate this. The reason why is pretty obvious. 40,000 Americans die every year of automotive accidents, which is an incredible number. The entire Vietnam War, you know, cost 58,000 Americans their lives. And we have 40,000 people dying in basically preventable, you know, automotive accidents every year. So it's a massive opportunity to improve society and allow people to live, you know, full lives. So that has changed, you know, really, really quickly. If you need an idea today that's still controversial, that I think will become obvious in retrospect, is the idea that medicine, which is really the quote unquote practice of medicine done by human judgment, human expertise, is very, very filled with mistakes and errors. And that almost all medical diagnosis should be done by math instead of humans is pretty controversial today. But I think in three years, five years, 10 years, we'll look back and say, why the hell weren't we doing this? Just applying Bayesian theorems to medical diagnosis would improve medical outcomes significantly, let alone applying checklists automatically to diagnosis. And then there's even stuff you can do that's more complicated than that. So I think inevitably, when the next generation of people are growing up, 90% of the time or more, they're going to get diagnosed by some algorithm rhythm instead of subhuman. I'm looking forward to that moment. What would be your advice to a student or professional that lost, has no idea what to do, or the first step that you would share with them to help solve that? The most important advice is to figure out as early as possible how you can be and what you can be most exceptional and extraordinary at. You want to be, to kind of paraphrase uh, Jerry Garcia, the goal is to be not just the best at what you do, you want to be the only one that does what you do. And it'll take some time to figure out how to define yourself in that way. It's a little bit similar when you write an application to a competitive college or business school or a law school in defining yourself in a unique way. And I think if you can identify identify where your comparative advantage is vis-a-vis other smart or hardworking people, that will allow you to thrive. But it may take some sampling. You may need to try 10 different things to figure out what your comparative advantage is. Some people sort of are blessed and they kind of know what it is before they start, and that makes it a lot easier. Other people have to experiment their way into it. So for example, you know, I went to law first and I was a pretty proficient lawyer. I would never have guessed that I'd be like, you know, an investor, an entrepreneurial executive, or a recruiter of identifier assessor of talent as my number one skill. So sometimes you have to do a lot of things before you figure out what you really should be doing. Cool. Is there a question that you ask founders pitching you that generally stumps them? I wouldn't say it's only founders, but people, I meet with a lot of executives. I think a lot, I meet with a lot of people in transition in their career, whether employees, executives in current companies. And, you know, so I'm interviewing a lot of people frequently, probably 20% to 30% of any week I spend uh, interviewing candidates and uh, or matchmaking people. And I, I think I usually start an interview with asking them, what do you want to do with your life? Because I think the answer to that question creates different advice and different set of feedback based upon what they want to accomplish. 
accomplish. There's choices that make a lot more sense if the goal is X than if the goal is Y. So I start, I try to start there with what's the first level thing you want to do and then calibrate their choices to match against that as tightly as possible. Awesome. Awesome. I think this is great. Sure. Thank you, Keith. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Keith Raboy. Thank you so much again, Keith, for coming on the show. It was great listening to him go in depth on how to follow the big ideas, take the risks that matter. He gave a great history lesson on the dot-com bubble and really contrasted that with today's startup ecosystem and provided timeless advice on hiring and retaining talent. That was very helpful. You can find all of his links in the description. You can also follow your host, Corey Levy, on Twitter at Corey. We have episodes coming out every Tuesday with amazing guests like Keith, so Stay tuned for that and we'll see you next time on Off Record.